Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler, and thank you for tuning in today. Now, we last left off with my story and where everything started out and what my life looked like before Depot. I was able to paint a fairly clear picture just as to what my journey looked like in a very linear fashion and kind of how I went through life, school, and eventually to college and all of the different things I was doing to get myself ready to go to Depot, to apply to the RCMP and to get all of these things done, to chase and challenge myself and pursue my biggest goal in life, which was to become a Mountie. I also talked a lot about kind of the reasons why I wanted to be a Mountie. And those reasons are still things that they make up who I am. The moral compass and the drive and the willingness to serve and help others. Those things still very much are a part of me despite the fact that I am now retired. Now what I didn't talk about was the emotional component of who I was at that point in my life. If I look back on myself, and this will all become clear in time why I'm explaining this, if I look back on myself as to who I was emotionally as a, a man, eventually at that point when I was getting ready to go to depot, I would describe myself as a very compassionate and caring individual filled with hope and optimism. I was incredibly positive and driven. I was focused on working out daily and I had so much energy. Depression was something that was not a part of my world at that point whatsoever. It is zest for life. Things were just clicking. I really enjoyed life. Life had purpose. Life had passion. Everything felt actually perfect. As I prepared to go to depot, I was met with some realizations that some relationships were going to endure some hardship. Uh, I was currently in a relationship in Edmonton at the time, and I knew that was definitely going to suffer. When you go to depot, you are there. I think you're allowed to leave once in the middle of depot or training for three days over the weekend. That is the only time you can leave to go home. I remember at that time, as we were driving to the airport, not one word was said. I think at that point in our lives, we both knew that this was going to be extremely hard and challenging on us. And it was very much something that I was met with a deep sense of sadness and grief. But I did try to remain hopeful and positive. I can remember that sitting in the airport... After I had said my goodbyes and phoned home to say goodbye to my family, that I sat with myself and my thoughts and my anticipation and my excitement about finally being so close to chasing my dream that I was now going to Regina to train for six months. At the same time, there was a very heavy feeling that accompanied that as I left one world for another. I believe I flew to Regina on January 6, 2007. Now, being from northern Alberta, I knew what cold weather entailed. I landed in Regina, and it was definitely cold. I think it was around minus 40 when I landed. After the plane ride, I jumped off, I grabbed my bags, called a cab, drove me over to training, and there I was at the front gates about to walk in. This was the point of no return for me, and I knew it. 
This was where change would happen. I signed into the guard room. I said a quick hello to a very old commissionaire, and he pointed me in the right direction. He said, welcome to depot. You are staying in B block. I believe I was on the top floor. He said, it's in that direction. Grab your stuff. Go check in. Get settled. Good luck. Now, when you arrive... The space is incredibly large. You can actually get lost on base relatively easily. And as soon as I came out of the guard room, on the other side of the fence, I was completely lost. Completely lost. But thankfully, one of the new trainees that was further along in his process pointed me in the right direction. A short walk later, I was at B Block, staring at my future home for six months with 30 other individuals. I walked up a flight of stairs into a big, long hallway that was a dorm that had about 30 beds on it, 15 on either side. Reality had struck. I would be sleeping and spending six months with men with no privacy whatsoever. I walked by the washroom as well and I had a quick peek inside just to see what the facility looked like and I saw the group shower and I thought to myself, oh my god, not only do I get to sleep with men for six months, I also get to shower with them for six months. This is going to be great. I walked down the long hallway to a point where I saw a bed with an ID sticker above it that said Nathan Kapler. I knew that was going to be my home and beside me on my left was my pit partner. I won't mention his name, but he was a big, tall man, and he introduced himself. We said a quick hello. I threw my stuff on the bed, and I sat down and took a deep breath. As the night went on, more people started to roll in. Everybody was coming in, getting set up for the next day when things officially started. Had a chance to say hello to most of the men that had joined me. There was a few females that had joined, but they stayed on a different floor in a different part of B-Block. We later had dinner that night as a group, and conversation continued to flow about who we were, where we were from, and why we were here, why we were at depot. There was nervousness, excitement, apprehension, all of these different emotions mixed in the group, as we all anticipated what the next day would bring. I don't believe many of us slept well that night either, but we tried. In the morning, we woke up around 5.30. We all showered together. We all shaved together. We put our clothes on together. We looked absolutely amazing in our business casual clothes. And we walked out of B Block and we stood in formation at 6 in the morning, minus 40 degrees. You see, when you're there, there's a very paramilitary type of structure. You line up, you march around, you move kind of how people would move on a military base. The drill hall would be the first stop every single morning for the next six months. The purpose of the drill hall was you would go there to get inspected to make sure that Everything that you wore and your appearance was perfect. It had to look perfect. And if it didn't, you got in trouble. If I had to describe the drill hall experience, I would say it was incredibly intense. Especially on the first day when you first walk in. As you march in as a troop, you line up in formation And then eventually a drill instructor comes out and inspects every single person that morning. 
and they are loud. They are screaming and they get up into your face and they scream at you. They talk about how horrible your deportment is, how bad you look, all of the issues that you've created for yourself first thing in the morning. This was definitely a challenge to all of us as we began to develop thick skin. While we were getting inspected, many of us had made mistakes. Our shirts weren't ironed properly. There were tiny crinkles in the shirt or your clothing. Maybe you had missed a spot shaving. That's how close they get when they look at you. And if you made mistakes, you got called out for it. You got in trouble. You had to go back for remedial. This was a part of my life. This was how the journey began. There's a very fundamental part, though, to drill, and I do believe it is still a positive space. It prepares you for the street later on. You don't really realize what's happening in that moment, but it gets you ready, because people do act like that on the street towards police officers. You are met with situations that are completely dynamic, and some of the people that we do deal with, unfortunately, are not mentally stable. It prepares you to have thick skin, so that you do not react, or you do not waffle, and that you can maintain your ground and respond to any event that's in front of you. Following the inspection at the drill hall, we all marched out and we all went for breakfast first thing in the morning. We all sat down, we broke bread together. That too happened every single morning in the same sequence after drill hall. That was a moment where you finally were able to take a deep breath. Drill was done. You've passed the first challenge of the day. Now, most of the days were actually quite fluid in our schedule. I think it was around 8 o'clock when the day would officially start. And it would usually carry through until about 4 o'clock. There was a very heavy academic side to training. We would go to class and then in class we would actually break out from that and then do various different things throughout the day. There was, there was a PT, a physical exercise time where we would go and we eventually got up to a point where we were running 5 miles uh, at a given time. Swimming was a part of the physical training as well. PDT, police defensive tactics, was also a part that was built into the day. We actually practiced PDT quite often and quite frequently. We learned how to arrest people and what the Charter of Rights looked like, and we talked about law at length for six months and all of the different situations that you could come across as a police officer. We learned how to drive police cars very fast on a closed track and do maneuvers at high speeds. When I look back at it, the training was actually very well done. A lot happened in six months, and for the most part, it did prepare you for the road. Now, being rooted in a very heavy military background, there were other things, too, that were happening behind the scenes. Our pits had to be spotless. Our beds had to be made the perfect way, the way that the RCMP wanted it to be made. Hospital corners were a thing that I had to learn. You had to iron your bed sheets, and some of us used starch too to make sure the sheets looked extra crisp. Everything in our pit had an exact place. And this too was a process of breaking us down and teaching us how to have a fine attention to detail. Because as a police officer, you have to pay attention to all of the small things that happen around you. 
And this is where the journey began into learning how to really pay attention to things on a very microscopic kind of scale. For the first few weeks, we actually walked around in business casual clothes. As time went on, though, we began to actually trade in our clothes for pieces of RCMP gear. We ended up getting blues, pants without the yellow stripe and the uniform shirt at first, and we transitioned into police boots. They would eventually take that away from you. You might have to go back to civilians as punishment if you're not respectful of the uniform. There were different psychological tips and tricks that they were using to break us down as a group so that we function together well as a group. There is a huge team spirit in the RCMP, and I do believe that is a good thing. In the beginning of our journey into training, it was definitely the most hard and challenging moment as we really started to get ground down as civilians and converted into law enforcement first responders and started to adopt a new personality. I believe that loss of identity is something that definitely happens in training. If I said it didn't, I I think I would be lying. It just depends, I think, for each and every single one of us. How far does that go? How much of yourself are you giving up to become a police officer? Because you do need to change to some degree. You have to. You now no longer are a civilian. If I'm to use the analogy of the sheepdog, it's almost that this is what you become. You're no longer a sheep. And I don't use a sheep in a derogatory kind of fashion. But you're definitely not one anymore. You become a sheepdog, someone who's there, someone who's constantly observing, someone who's constantly there watching the flock of sheep, making sure everybody's okay, and protecting the sheep from the wolf. I believe this can also be problematic too in the sense that once you're out in the real world, there's not a lot of us sheepdogs out there. And there's definitely moments when we can feel socially isolated, like we don't really belong in this world anymore. Even though we've answered the call for the higher calling to protect others and serve our country, it can become very difficult for us to connect with others. We find we don't have as much in common anymore. Despite this, many of us continue to pursue our dreams and our goals through our journey. We were beaten down at points, we were battered, we were sprayed with OC spray and forced to do laps and physical exercise while our eyes burned profusely. These events all helped us to get ready though for experiences that may happen to us. It wasn't just a form of torture, so don't think that I'm going there. It was definitely something that was used as a tool. Experiences as a police officer are the most important thing that will keep you alive. As time continued on, we were advised one day in drill that we had actually been selected to be a part of Rifle Troop. When you're there, you spend a lot of time learning how to march in formation, in different formations. And for us, we had actually been selected to not only march in formation, but use a rifle as well and learn how to maneuver it and flip it and twirl it and put on a bit of a show. 
Look, looking back at the experience, it was actually quite comical. Even though Canada's finest were selected to go in to become a part of my troop, I can tell you that people dropped rifles all over the place. Rifles were smashing the floor constantly when we first began. We were not good looking at what we did by any means. But eventually, over time, we did get to a point where we actually were able to put on a show in Regina during a very large event. And it was actually kind of a very cool experience. There was a point in time, though, in our journey where finally things became a lot easier. We were starting to function a little bit better as a troop. We were starting to do the team thing a lot better and function in just such a different, more proficient and efficient way that... Our instructors finally started to leave us alone. They started to actually positively reinforce what we were doing on a daily basis. The first half in training was incredibly hard. You got beat down every single day to the point where they wanted to see who could and who would break and weed out anyone that didn't belong there. But the second half was when things finally got easier. You finally had a bit more time to spend on yourself. Despite the hectic schedule that continued to happen daily. Now, during that time, we also had many, many tests. You had to get qualified for your pistols. You had to write different exams based on your knowledge and how much you knew. You had to pass tests for your driving skills. The place was full of tests, and you were constantly getting marked and assessed and tested on so many different aspects of the journey. All good things. But you can tell that with tests, sometimes people don't do well. And there were moments even when I didn't do well on tests. Prior to going into training, I received what I considered to be great advice. Someone had told me, hey, Nate, you know what? Whatever you do when you go into depot, don't be the high flyer and don't be the lowest piece of hanging fruit. Stay right in the middle. You don't want to attract too much attention for yourself. It'll make your journey so much easier. For me, that didn't mean don't try to achieve the best that you could achieve. It was just act appropriately. Don't draw attention to yourself. But at the same time, it was a bit of a downfall. I think I probably pulled in a little bit too tight. While you're there, you are constantly being watched and you are constantly being assessed. You may not feel like you have a lot of privacy or freedom. And I believe while that can be a good thing in training, can also be a bit of a loaded situation. If I can unpack that thought even just a little bit further, it's not that I would say that it could possibly invite paranoia, but for humans who live in that environment for too long, it can invite a very unhealthy way of thinking. If you feel like you're constantly being watched and assessed and fearful of what may happen for what you may do, I would argue that that's not really an entirely supportive environment for full freedom of expression, for full freedom of choice. But alas, this is the world that Mounties live in. They don't have that ability. They have to play within the sandbox outline. And that's where they have to stay. Looking back, the adversity that I faced, and no doubt others faced, my adversity came from the two major points that came from me was that I had failed my first qualifications for firing my pistol. That was the first time that I had seen my anxiety take over. And now when you're shooting a pistol at 50 yards, trying to hit a paper target, and your hand starts to shake even the slightest amount, that throws off your aim. 
My anxiety had definitely impacted me at that point, and I knew it was something that I was going to have to really hone in on. In the beginning, there was actually quite a few of us that did fail. For me, I was always a good shot with a firearm, especially growing up in northern Alberta. I was quite used to using guns, so it wasn't a really foreign event for me to handle one and use one. But nonetheless, I did actually fail my first qualifications. Now, where I was able to take this challenge was that I eventually took it to our final qualifications, where at the very end, you shoot for the final time, and that is your end score, the end challenge. Now, not to boast, but I shot a perfect score while in depot. I attained my crowns, and that is not common. I think my name went up on the board for six months. It can take quite a while for someone to achieve the perfect score. I had smashed through adversity and failure and practiced enough that I had gotten to a point where I achieved a perfect score. I was quite proud of myself, and I did actually get recognition at our final dinner and was honored to be able to challenge myself to grow to that point. At the end of training, I also failed my my final detachments and that came as a bit of a, a shock to me. It was, and I think it actually came probably to a bit of a shock to our troop as well. I came back and I was like, boys, I didn't, I didn't pass. I kind of messed up here. It was a, it was a minor mistake, uh, but I did own it right away. And I think I went over to my instructors and said, I've, I've got bad news. Uh, I didn't pass, but I want to sit down with you and I want to talk about this because I'm not going to let this hold me back from graduating. We are going to pass this. We are going to get through this. And I was applauded in that moment for taking that step and that approach because I again, embraced vulnerability and spoke openly about having a failure and recognizing that I needed to continue to push myself to push even through that. And most of us in depot were wired that way. Despite being met with failure multiple times over the course of six months, none of us let that stop us from achieving our dream. The friendship I had gained over those six months was phenomenal. I knew people in such a light that I had never known others to that depth. I knew many brothers and sisters that we would eventually go out into the field, and I'm still closely connected to them on a very deep level. We may not talk all the time, but those people are people we forged a new future with. And there's a very cool bond that comes from that space. As time went on, we got fitted for our Red Surge, and we couldn't be more proud. I remember the day I actually had my first picture taken in Red Surge. The smile on my face was massive. I had finally achieved my dream. I felt like a cop. I looked like a cop. I thought like a cop. And I had finally received news of where I would be posted. It was in BC, and it was Whistler. Not a bad place to go, by any means. And I knew the games were coming up, too, so I thought, this is going to be wild. When I called home to let people know where I was going to be posted, my family was happy for me. I'm sure there was a bit of apprehension there as well. When I called the woman that I was with at the time, you could tell that it was definitely something that did not sit well. But again, I tried to remain very positive for the future. As we moved through the seasons of winter and spring and summer, we finally were met with the day of graduation. Our families had come out to celebrate with us, We spent time with them finally in our new roles. We had dinner that night and celebrated the fact that we had accomplished so much in such a little amount of time. We wished each other well and good luck on their journeys. We said our goodbyes 
We thanked our families for support, and the next morning we all packed up and eagerly left. For many of us, we were allowed a few days to go home and collect our belongings, say our goodbyes to our families, and then head out to our first post. I believe I graduated on June 25th, 2007. I was expected to be in Whistler for July 1st. Once home in Edmonton, I had quickly packed up everything that I needed, set everything up so the movers could come and pick up my stuff, which would later be transported and would meet me in Whistler. I said my goodbyes, and I hit the road in my little truck, filled with everything that I had in my life. I drove from Edmonton to Whistler that day. It took me about 10 hours of driving. I got pulled over by a cop, which was an incredibly awkward conversation, It went something like, hey, I'm so sorry, I'm going to Whistler. Cop asked, what are you doing in Whistler? She she could see all my stuff in the back of my truck. said, well, I just got hired by the Mounties. I just finished training, and I'm actually moving there right now. She took one look at me and laughed and said, stop driving like an idiot. I said, yes, I will do that. Thank you. And she let me on my way. I arrived in Whistler that night. It was dark. It was my new home, and I couldn't really get my bearings, but when I first arrived, I took a walk in the village just to kind of check out the area before I checked into the Delta Hotel. Whistler was beautiful. I couldn't believe I was there. That was my first post, and if you've never spent time in Whistler, the the village itself is picturesque. There's fountains and mountains in the background. There's all these beautiful businesses that are set up that are whining and dining. There's a ton of money and investments up there. The place looks beyond perfect. And that was going to be my new home for at least the next four years as a Mountie. As one chapter closed and a new began, I wanted to leave off here and set the stage for the next episode. Join me next time as we continue to talk about my own journey into being a Mountie. We're going to explore what life was like when I first got to Whistler. Some of the calls that I went through, some of the trauma that I saw, some of the things that impacted me that I didn't really recognize at the time of how deeply it had impacted me. And this is where PTSD, my journey into it, begins. In closing, I just wanted to take a quick moment and reflect on the fact that this is my fourth episode. Now, while it may not seem like a lot, I've been here for a month. And the amazing outpouring of support that I'm receiving from all over Canada continues to happen. My phone is blowing up on every single day by members who are suffering, members who are going through something, members' spouses who are seeing their partners suffer. So if you too are suffering, please know that there is always hope and there is always help for you. And I thank you in advance to anyone that is actively sharing this podcast with others. We are here to build a space, to have an open discussion about our own journeys, our journey into post-traumatic stress disorder, what it looks like, how to help identify it, and how to give you the tools and tricks on how to navigate this world and come out okay. So once again, thank you for being in this space. I'm honored to be here with you. Thank you for supporting me while we continue to move this conversation forward. Much love.